Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Listeners, welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, our guest is Nicholas Badminton. Nicholas is a futurist, he is a speaker, a consultant, and he is an advisor to trillion-dollar companies and governments where he advises on where we are heading in the future, especially with artificial intelligence, looking at the next 5 to 25 years down the road, and especially where we are today in and through this pandemic around AI with a lot of things going on. I think his advice is more timely than ever before. So Nicholas, thanks for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. You know, I think although we don't know yet, and there's all these words going around such as black swans and black elephants, which we'll dive deeper into the show, I think it's great first to share with our audience a little bit about your background of getting into AI and how you've become this thought leader who's doing fantastic work in the space. Yeah, so uh, about the age of 10 years old, I started programming computers and uh, I, I sort of flunked out of school and was one of those kids sat in his bedroom hacking away and, and you know, hacking computer games and writing other games and applications. And I eventually uh, made my way to university a little later than some because I sort of uh, bucked the trend and didn't really graduate from school in, in, in the same way as most people. And, and I eventually ended up in a program called Applied Psychology and Computing at, at, the, uh, at Bournemouth University. I, I got a Bachelor of Science uh, in, in that degree. And what I did was uh, I focused on some of the more, more uh, challenging subjects in there. And I looked at organizational design. I looked at the psychology behind that. But I, I also went into linguistics and artificial intelligence. 
and using artificial intelligence to do uh, grammatical grammar checking and, and grammatical investigations. Uh, it was pretty interesting. It was early days. It didn't work very well. Single layer neural networks. And then I sort of dropped into the data world, massive data infrastructures, using analytics, behavioral targeting of customers using data way before all of the Cambridge Analytica situation. And it was a lot slower and it was a lot more basic, but it's incredibly uh, successful from a, from a profitability perspective for my clients. So I spent about 16, 17 years in that, moved to Canada, went to work in uh, advertising and then ended up uh, sort of running my own events, talking about humanity and technology, doing some events with Amber Case, uh, Cyborg Camp and, and running unconferences called Future Camp, doing podcasts and then Suddenly, I was writing a lot for people like the the Huffington Post and then a little bit for Forbes and then a little bit for TechCrunch. And people started calling me a futurist, which I thought was strange. But then it started to make a lot of sense. And then I started to be hired to speak about artificial intelligence about six, seven years ago. And, And it was really just a nascent sort of occupation there. And it just really started to catch on fire. So we really, really got into uh, talking about you know, the human ethics and the hybridity of human and the machine very early on, whereas a lot of people were suddenly making huge claims about automation replacing hundreds of millions of people around the world and and robotics and robotic process automation. A lot of unqualified people talking about, you know, speculations of of future worlds that were not really going to happen. So I, I grounded ourselves in talking about humanity. And uh, that's what I do. I talk about our futures and, and it's speculation at best, but really it's a lot of fun thinking about the signals that we see today and speculating how that's going to have a ripple effect 5, 10, 20 years into the future. So I love that you just mentioned about the practical side of humans and machines. You know, we're seeing as we're being socially distanced in our homes, a lot of new television shows coming out and Netflix, HBO and Amazon Prime like Westworld and Devs and The Loop. And it makes you wonder, could the world be like this or is it something that we shouldn't be worrying about just yet? So I know it's very futurist, but are we moving to a James Delos Westworld? Are we moving to a Devs world with a supercomputer? What's your take on some of these TV shows? Yeah, I remember the first Westworld with Yul Brynner, and it was it was pretty fantastical at that point in time. But like, really, if if you look at that, there's a lot of moving parts there. Like, literally, you know, sentient AI, in the independent thinking, you know, AGI, and really, uh, you know, something that that can act as a human, move as a human, perceive, create its own philosophy, create its own purpose. And we are a long, long way from that. I sort of question people that are trying to give that to machines because it's very difficult because we can't work out what it truly means for ourselves beyond sort of a, a metaphysical and sort of a discussionary uh, philosophical uh, bent. And I spent a lot of time at a university looking at complexity theory, chaos theory, thinking about consciousness. And we're not really that much more uh, ahead than we were 25 years ago. So it's interesting as a debate around ethics and artificial intelligence around a fantastical future. You know, in in a couple of hundred years, might we have someone that we can see in Westworld today uh, at that point in time? Yeah, maybe. But that's going to be a really very complex engineered organism 
Will it be biological? We don't really know. Will we be able to create artificial intelligence and program it like ex machina or, or these sort of biological ideas around artificial intelligence? I'm not quite sure. A couple of hundred years, maybe, but uh, certainly not in the next 5, 10, 25, even 30 years. And, you know, if we segue away from like Westworld and some of these, you know, futuristic or very futuristic ideas, I, I know you've had the opportunity to be involved with some docu-series and one of them in the last couple of years, The Age of AI, where you give some more practical looking as you shaped these conversations. Can you tell us more about that docu-series and what that looked like? Yeah, so I was living in, in Vancouver was a couple of summers ago, and I was approached by a producer that worked for a company called Network Entertainment. And they were working with Team Downey, which was Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, production company, and YouTube on this eight-part series on, on artificial intelligence. And, and we had a coffee, me and the producer. And after an hour, she said, okay, we need to get you in the room with the scriptwriters because I think that we might be, you know, going into directions that, that maybe not, as pure as they should be when we're actually thinking about artificial intelligence. Anyway, I, I spent a few days in a, locked in a room with scriptwriters, looking at their ideas, really trying to understand what they're trying to achieve. And what was really heartening was they wanted to tell human stories. So I, I sort of talked to, to them about dialing that up and saying, you know, this is about humans. This is ultimately about a hybridity between humans and technology. It doesn't live on its own. There's not robotics that are independent from who we are that are suddenly trying to take over the world. There's actual practical applications that are going to help us solve big problems. So that idea around humanity solving big problems using artificial intelligence and really delving into some, some big ideas about what it could be is where we started. And we went through eight different ideas and, and areas. And I helped the scriptwriters really structure what this should look like. And, you know, over time, I stepped away and over time they developed it. But, you know, I, I'm pretty glad that they sort of stuck on the themes of humanity progressing forward because of this technology and not that technology progressing beyond who we are. And I love how you mentioned you've had these eight different episodes that as you've been shaping, it's about humans and machines together. And in the world that we're living today with this pandemic, with COVID-19 and coronavirus, I think a lot of it is how can we get practical? You know, we were looking earlier on one of our episodes about the Google trends, and we saw that during the whole pandemic, AI went down in the trends, and now it's back up at peak. You know, people are bored. People want to get back into technology. They want to work. They want to make a difference. And so I think AI could be a very useful uh, theme here. What are some of the things you're seeing around AI in the age of this pandemic? Yeah, so it was actually interesting that a company up here in Toronto called Blue Dot actually noticed on December the 30th last year that there was a, a strange cluster of new kind of pneumonias that were happening around a market in Wuhan. It was the first company to really start uh, waving the red flags. Not that it really did us any good because uh, China didn't really act on this very quickly. They could have locked it down, right? These things are, are slightly unpredictable. And, you know, the tracing and the uncontrollable spread wasn't quite understood there. So I understand things. So there's no pointing fingers from here. But Blue Dot really stepped forward. And, and now, you know, there's a bunch of other, you know, artificial intelligence companies that are stepping up to, to process that data to help people look for, you know, discoveries for drugs to treat it, to look for new ways of considering proteins and, and how they're structured in relation to the virus and how we could maybe even create vaccines. I find that to be incredibly useful. And that practical application 
is something that is very, uh, very important here. Now, what's really important coming back to Blue Dot is that they're a company that, that uses artificial intelligence, but it's not independent of actual expertise. They do actually have humans and the machine working together. So they've got about 40 people that are veterinarians, doctors, uh, epidemiologists, uh, engineers, data scientists, uh, software developers all working together because uh, artificial intelligence just doesn't wander off and become useful. It needs a lot of training. It needs a lot of guidance. It needs a lot of that, that practical expertise. And sure, it might be able to start identifying patterns that we may not see as readily or as easy as AI, but our practical wisdom needs to be injected into the overall solution. So thinking about these solutions, I mean, it's incredible to see that companies here in 2020 can figure out when something's going to happen before it happens. It reminds me of one of my all-time favorite movies, The Minority Report with Tom Cruise, where I'm thinking about, can we do the prediction? Is AI the magic cure or, you know, way to figure that out? I don't know, but I know a lot that people are talking about is that this event is so rare. I mean, in 1918, we had the Spanish flu. There was a flu that was probably just as contagious and probably more deadly than what we're seeing here today and had tremendous impact on everyone in all societies. We saw people wore face masks back then. We saw that the economy, you know, struggled around World War I and, and a lot of impact was seen. But, you know, the word's been out on the street in Wall Street and with a lot of technologists. But are we experiencing a black swan? I mean, a lot of people have said this on CNBC and I don't know. Is that what's happening? So a black swan is a completely, you know, unforeseen event that's got major impact in the world. To be honest, pandemics, it's one of the situations to arise that's been modeled like relentlessly. It's been prepared for relentlessly. It's been forgotten by people conveniently, right? And now suddenly everyone's popping up saying, this is a black swan, that's a black swan. You know, a true black swan is like a meteor dropping on the earth and destroying New York. Or suddenly Iceland being ripped apart by volcanic activity and everyone having to leave that country or an alien invasion. I mean, these are pretty uh, fantastical ideas. But true black swans, you can't see coming. This is a black elephant. You know, the elephant in the room and the black swan. Well, if you've got a black elephant, it's that black swan that's been in the room for over 100 years that everyone knows that there's a risk of it uh, rearing its head and causing a huge calamity. But we've just conveniently pushed it to the side and decided that, yeah, the likelihood of that happening is a lot lower than, than we really want to pay attention to. So it's kind of ridiculous because we've seen SARS, we've seen MERS, we've seen Ebola. We even had Obama talking about the seriousness of pandemics like four or five years ago. We had Bill Gates talking about the seriousness. We've had countries like uh, Singapore, dealing with the situation today very well because they had to deal with SARS, because they kept the, the situations and processes and traceability and the reaction force to a pandemic in place because they knew that it could come back and it could come back quite vigorously. And other places like Hong Kong and Taiwan have been able to deal with this. I mean, China really dealt with this in quite a ham-fisted way. I'm not sure whether they're being truthful about their numbers. I, I figure that they're not. And uh, that's speculation, obviously. But maybe there's something there that they, they've just really ham-fisted. They haven't really worked out what it was. But they didn't even think it was serious. You know, and, and, you know, you do have these wet markets in places like Wuhan. And people are now pointing the finger at that. It's not that. It's about the processes. It's about the government readiness. 
And it's about the, the human awareness of the situation. Absolutely no individual on the planet that was outside of government or military or doing foresight was really even thinking about this on a daily basis. So now this pops up and suddenly we're all locked away. It seems completely fantastical and science fiction in a way, but it, it's so real that it's coming to sort of slap us in the face every single day, right? You know, although we're seeing now, you know, 77 days after the lockdown, Wuhan is opening back up. You know, people are, of course, still using face masks, getting the temperature checks, but we're seeing life begin to resume in the new norm in China. But I think what's so interesting is is not just, you know, how can governments be more uh, traceable? How can they be more governing in real time? But it's thinking about these black elephants. I've never thought of it with that phrase before. But when I think of it right now, from how you so perfectly gave that definition, Nicholas, is like another black elephant could be explainable AI. You know, we've been talking about for years that machine algorithms are going to go wrong. They're going to do discriminate. They're going to do things that are not right. We even have GitHub repos out there on awful AI examples, similar to like this person does not exist and and other things out there. So I could see now that I'm hearing this phrase, the black elephant, it could be many different things occurring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've never even thought about that myself. But yeah, artificial intelligence that's misbehaving in the corner. Uh, Maybe the data sets that we've used were incorrect. I first came across AI in practical use Around about 23 years ago, I went for a job interview for an unnamed company in the UK, and uh, I was interviewing for um, using LISP, which is a really old artificial intelligence language, to program Polaris missiles, guidance systems. But you think about it, if if you've had that level of of focus and investment in artificial intelligence in in weapons systems, imagine if that, that reality of Skynet becoming sentient becomes an actual reality, and maybe it's seeding the black elephant with some really uh, heinous code or training that's been done by someone that's got a grudge. Yeah, those kinds of things are really interesting to think about when we're looking at foresight and scenarios. So basically, black elephants do exist everywhere. It's I had this episode that's going live in a few days. Uh, I spoke recently with Lorna Davis, who's done a lot with B Corp and government activism. And we've talked about for years, will the oceans get polluted with plastics? No, it's going to happen in 100 years. Here we are in 2020. It's already happening. Big plastic farms, nets. So it's that these things can occur a lot quicker than we anticipate. And the results that we think are fantastical in our mind are actually real. They're not necessarily meteor showers or alien invasions, but they're impacting humans. Yeah, I speak about climate change, and I've been speaking about climate change for a long time. I work with uh, the United Nations on a a program called Resilience Frontiers, which is around around creating resilient solutions because the planet is getting warmer. We're not going to be able to cool it down. It's an inevitability. So using, using machine learning and data and analytics to do predictions, using other practical solutions that are away from uh, normal ideas of technology like we're talking about today. But when we when we start really looking at this and thinking about what, what truly is a black elephant, it's those things that we deny but are like stood there right in our face. And I think climate change is the best example of a black elephant in the room. And the ignorance has been fueled by lobbyists um, in government saying, hey, don't worry, it's fine, we'll keep burning oil, fossil fuels is the future. Unfortunately, now what we're seeing with our lockdown and and the stresses in government 
in the workforce, uh, so many hourly workers, poverty rates and whatever. It's a symptom of industrialization that we've been caught in for 260 years. It's going to be very difficult to escape the gravity of that. But now this maybe this new digital evolution, as I'm calling it, is going to help uh, drag us away from this old world into a world of renewables, of artificial intelligence and biology, of being able to look at new ways of communication and new ways of electrification with supergrids around the world, renewables, and then uh, transportation as well. And the communication, I think, all does focus on transportation because transportation is one of the big reasons, as efficient as it is, it caused the spread of this disease or condition, COVID-19, to be that much faster because of how connected the world is. But now we're seeing, as you mentioned before, Nicholas, with Blue Dot, we're also seeing other startups out of Singapore that are working on track and trace. We actually have this app out today called Trace Together that, you know, if you're a national in Singapore, you can install it on your phone. And assuming you're someone who has received COVID-19, you go into your quarantine containment lockdown and you create a geofence border around your apartment and the government can track you and trace you and know if you leave your apartment in 15 minutes, a government official is there to check. Are you there or are you escaping? Yeah, but the, the big idea behind this application, I, I spoke with a client at Great Lens about this earlier, is the idea that you, everyone could, should install it. And everyone should turn on their, their, you know, Bluetooth for this application so that they can actually trace each other and create networks out in the wild. You don't have to be infected with COVID-19. You're just out there. Imagine if you could listen to a podcast where James Delos tells you why he bought Westworld. Well, James Delos isn't real. But Christopher Slow of Reddit, Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma, and Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers are real. Code Story is a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating digital products. In the show, host Noah Labhart digs into the critical details about what it takes to change an industry, how a tech visionary got started building their world-changing product, and how they scale their product on their journey. Our tech leaders are not only brilliant builders, they are humans with a human story to tell. If you want to hear the real human stories behind tech, Code Story is the podcast for you. Subscribe to Code Story now on every major podcast platform or visit Code Story at codestory.co. But if, if suddenly someone that you've experienced in the past couple of days and suddenly is, is now got... Uh, COVID-19, the government can now find you, lock you down, lock the friends down that you've chatted to and whatever. It's that ripple effect out. There's a lot of discussion here around, you know, how much is this surveillance? How much is this utility and usefulness and protection for the individual? This is why uh, Singapore are really good at locking this stuff down. And it's a lot easier to deploy this kind of technology in, in what is ultimately a police state, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, I naturally, as someone who's in the United States, do think about data privacy, think of GDPR and CCPA. So I come from that thoughts about surveillance. But I think when you're in a society like Singapore, where there's a lot more trust in the government, and a lot more unity and working together in their system, you can think, wow, I mean, we can contain things at the source and we help everyone rise above COVID-19 together. Yeah, I 
I guess trust <laughs> is a strange word to use in somewhere like Singapore. You know, it's an island. It's incredibly progressive. I actually really love going there. The people are awesome. The government locks it down, and it is very authoritarian in a way. It's, it's not as authoritarian as maybe somewhere like like China. But, you know, they're, they're in charge. They lock it down. They tell you what to do. And uh, if you break the law, you could actually uh, spend some time uh, behind bars, right? So I, I'm not sure whether it's an open, loving trust between the citizen and the government. Puns like this, I think the citizens uh, will actually follow some orders, as it were, to help lock this down, just because it means it gets them back to, to normal life again. I mean, I'm going to pose this question to you, David. If someone came up to you and said, in America, if you installed this application and you stayed indoors for the next four weeks and never left, and we'll check, we could slow things down. What do you think would happen in America? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I think today in America, if that question was posed, you would have about 40 or 50 million people who would install it and a ton of people who would not install it. And it would be on both sides of the political spectrum. I think what would help it be more effective in America is you would need to do like what Governor Cuomo is doing in New York, where he's basically starting a movement, you know, stay at home, where Jennifer Lopez and, and Alex Rodriguez and all these celebrities buy into it. Because America traditionally loves culture. And I think culture and the leaders that they look up to on different social platforms could help them be as effective. The reason might just be we're a different culture than in Singapore. Absolutely. And, you know, Peter Drucker very famously said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So you can have any strategy in the world and it could be communicated. It could be very clear. The bottom line is if your favorite uh, musician or, or sportsman, sportswoman, sportsperson is starting to, to influence you to be safe and be at home and to give you a reason to be there because maybe they're speaking to you on a nightly basis or, or whatever, in a broad sense, obviously, then maybe yes. I actually think in America, the culture is freedom. And anytime you tell me that you're taking my freedom away, I'm going to say, well, you know what, screw that. And that's, that's, <laughs> that's the mess that uh, America's got itself into. What was it, 300,000 people went away on spring break? 
And you, there, there's some uh, <laughs> there's some technologies out there that actually show you from you know the, the beach down there in Florida, and you can see the spread of where those people went to afterwards, and the networks, and through tracking smartphone technologies uh, that people have got in their pockets, and, and it's incredible, right? So, so yeah, I mean, the thing is, Singapore is very small; it can be contained, and they've got ironclad rules around that. America is very big. And uh, the idea of freedom isn't a bad idea. And democracy isn't a bad idea. Right now, this virus doesn't care about democracy. It doesn't care about freedom. It doesn't even care to infect humans. It just does it. And, and it's, we spread it from human to human. And now we're in the situation that we're in. And we're in pretty dire straits you know, for a good six months, probably in a lockdown situation. And we're not going to get back to reality, as I was chatting to a client about earlier. For 18 to 24 months. So, like, you know, this is this is pretty significant. So I think that sometimes, you know, we have to lean into the cultural icons to make people sit up and, and pay attention. That's right. And my call to action for the United States is if big tech is listening to the Humane Podcast, if you're Facebook, Google, Apple, Instagram, Snapchat, Amazon. We're giving you our data every single day for applications, for social media, and for purchases. So there must be a good way that we can just take all that data, give you the permissions. Here's my data you've been collecting for my whole life. Have it now. Let's start some track and trace. Because if we don't, I mean, we know that there have been predictions out there, and some of them are big predictions, but they say up to 2.5 billion people could be infected with coronavirus, COVID-19, maybe even up to 53 million people to die or succumb from the disease. But, you know, how credible is that? You know, where are we going? So 1918, 1919, Spanish flu, 50 to 100 million people dead. People were downplaying the data at that point in time. What was interesting about Spanish flu is some of the final cases they came across of a similar virus that was probably mutated from the original one back in 1918, 1919, were still popping up in 1952. So uh, it's, it's not that incredible to think that this is going to go far and wide. It's our response to it, right? So our ability to treat it, our ability to have healthcare that can help people that have it get over it in the more extreme cases for us to take things seriously and to stay at home. And, and you know, we're going to see cases for years, COVID-19. When vaccinations pop up, I think a lot of people are going to want to get vaccinated. There was a study that I was looking at earlier today, last year. It found that 45% of Americans, there's about two and a half thousand Americans were, were polled. Uh, 45% of them actually said that they didn't trust vaccines. Not that they wouldn't get them, it's just they don't trust them. And right now we're starting, you know, we're starting to do human trials. Probably 12 months at the earliest, we're going to have a, a vaccination that could work well, or we hope works well. So who's going to be first in line to get that? A lot of people are going to say, no, they're going to wait to see what happens to the people that, that go and get it first, right? You know, for me, I'm a data scientist by trade. So everything is about the scientific method. You know, you're going to create a vaccine. Perfect. Let's do a randomized control trial. Run it on, you know, 30 rabbits, 30 monkeys, whatever you want to. Of course, COVID-19 wouldn't make sense in that case because we, we it only seems to be, you know, human to human or, or certain animal transmission. But do a randomized control trial, do it for 30 people, show me the results, boom, sign me up. You know, uh, I might not be number one, but I'll be number 30. 
Yeah, I mean, that's not exactly how it works with vaccines. But yeah, simplistically, absolutely. They've already started human trials. And there's actually a number of stages that they go through in terms of testing that, yes, they'll, they'll start with a smaller group of people, you know, 20, 30 people. Then it takes three or four months to see how, how it fares. Does it work? Has it created some sense of antibodies within the body to create resiliency? Then take it out to a slightly further group. And, you know, suddenly you're 12 months into this study. You don't go 30. Yeah, it seems to be working. Let's release that. Because we end up it being in a situation where, you could be affecting unborn children. You could you'd be affecting like brain development in, in children as they're growing up from like five to 18 years old. You could be killing old people. It's not that easy, right? So I think we need to be slow and steady with the vaccination. I think we, we've got no choice but to be slow and steady, stay at home. Because if we don't, we're just going to see hundreds of millions of people dead around the world, right? You know, we're talking about vaccines where some people have hesitancies to get them. But another thing that people have been not so hesitant to stop doing is shaking hands. We've heard that Dr. Fauci with the you know Trump administration in the U.S. said you should never shake hands again in your whole entire life. So I quote, you know, shaking hands is not something you should do. Yeah. Why have people been so easy to stop shaking hands, but not necessarily get a vaccine? Do you know what? I miss my friends. I want to hug some of my friends right now. I, I miss them so much. Uh, you know, shaking hands would be a luxury. Dr. Fauci said that it, because of this, it's known that once you shake someone's hand, within about 10 minutes, you actually bring your hand to your face and you smell your own fingers. It, it's a human biological quirk. And it's, it comes back from, you know, the days when we were apes, you know, we're just checking out pheromonally are we sort of trusted are we part of the same sort of tribe in a way so that's kind of why there's this like stop shaking hands i actually stopped shaking hands about seven weeks ago it was before people were shaking hands i, I went to a training course for two days in detroit and people were like oh and i was trying to build business relationships i was, I was doing the, the what i call the pandemic fist bump right and you know they see me disappear after doing a bunch of like fist bumps to go and wash my hands every every time everyone's looking at me very strangely but now they've sort of been emailing me back and they're like yeah we get it we understand why you were doing that now so does it change the social fabric of who we are as humans if you don't shake hands and you stand at distance if you're in the same room as someone or in the same open space you've still got those mirror neurons firing you've still got that attraction whether they're friends or lovers or potentials in, in either of those cases. And that's that's a pretty good step towards keeping social cohesion. Right? Yes, and I, I wonder actually what the new norm could look like. So whether that's in six months or 18 or 24 months, you know, could the new norm be that we go to in-person conferences and we actually say, hey, Nicholas, we're going to shake hands. And right there, we take out our Purell gel, we wash our hands, we disinfect. Like, you know, could that be the new normal? And I suspect it might be that everyone will have these devices at conferences, you know, infrared sensors, you know, blue UV sensors, all these things everywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be part of the new normal. I, I like to think of some science fiction and some uh, sci-fi films that, that sort of make me uh, sort of uh, excited to talk about this kind of crazy world. Demolition Man, right? No no, no handshaking, hi, hi. You know, um, he didn't know how to use the three shells when he was going to the washroom. There's no toilet paper in the future. There's no physical sex in the future as well. Are we going to end up in, in that situation? 
I think some people would love to end up in that situation <laughs> just because that's how they work in the world. I think that humans love to be around others. They just like the sense of human touch. And obviously, uh, we're going we're gonna to get back to that world. I think that Dr. Fauci will be shaking hands when the vaccination has been successful. <laughs> so I don't know. There's a reason, again, why he said that. And it's just because we're strange creatures as humans. And you know what? If I was in New York, I shook you by the hand. I'm going to be smelling my fingers in about 10 minutes. It's just like how our, you know, our beloved creatures, these dogs that we have came from wolves. You know, we humans, we came from a, a line of species that have these habits that are just so deeply ingrained. And perhaps some of that is also what you mentioned around vaccines. We know, you know, many companies now are on this quest to find a COVID-19 vaccine. We've seen Bill Gates talk about it in his TED Talk in the last few weeks. You know, where do you think we are realistically on that vaccine search? We're right at the beginning, you know, we're, we're, we're two, maybe three months into it. That's it. We've got another 12 months, I think, before we've got anything really hopeful to talk about, you know, which, which we're clamoring for hope. You know, world leaders are clamoring for hope. They're trying to calm everyone down that there is some light at the end of the tunnel. I'm hopeful that we're going to get there. There's very, very smart people in the world working together. Artificial intelligence is, is sort of playing its role. Analytics is playing its role, big data. And, and data science is playing its role. So, so that's really cool. And uh, I think that these practical uses of artificial intelligence are really why we're here and why we're talking about, about this um, in this podcast and beyond. I mean, what's really interesting is that, that even without that, you know, we're not going to move as quickly as we can move today, you know, in, in, re in all reality, you know. This is why in 1918, 1919, how did they deal with this, right? Phone calls, telegrams, you know, and, and in the end, it was lock yourself up and never come out, you know, wear a mask if someone's sick in your home. The same thing. Have we really progressed in 100 years? It seems not. Do we have better tools to find a solution? Yes, we do. So, you know, that's the uh, human evolutionary piece. We actually evolve pretty slowly with technology. If you think about it, we still drive uh, internal combustion engine cars even when we've got better solutions with electric vehicles. But, you know, when, when did the uh, internal combustion engine come out? It was the, the Benz brothers in the late 1800s. No, how much has that truly evolved? Yes, we can go faster. Yes, we, we burn less fuel. But really, we're still on the starting blocks of so many parts of our lives. And, you know, it sounds like, as you mentioned, we're in the starting part. We've seen some work coming out from Google DeepMind with their AlphaFold. We've seen work coming out as well from different universities and protein designs. But that is just the beginning stage, right? So it could be another, you know, 6 to 12 or 18 months till we get to good, viable vaccines, which is why there's causes where Bill Gates is saying, take the time now, commit money to coronavirus research. We've seen Jack Dorsey of Twitter just set aside, you know, millions and millions of dollars to say we need to take action now. So, you know, I'm hopeful that the money will go into the right donor advised funds that will help us, you know, create solutions to come out with working vaccines. Yeah, and we we got to remember who's behind these solutions. It's humans. And uh, even with the best machine learning and data sets, you know what? It's humans that are shaping the future, and we're going to continue to shape the future. We're not going to hand it over wholly to any model because models can't be, be trusted, uh, data models. And, and uh, this is kind of the dilemma. You know, we want the future. We want it so bad right now. We want to imagine 
you know, liberation from the, this industrialized world. And you know what? It's not going to be in our generation and it's not going to be in our lifetime. You know what? In maybe a hundred years time, it's going to be a really interesting time to be alive because the world is suddenly going to be on, on the right track with digital evolution. And you know what? I think a lot of the, the old male white world leaders or the old male world leaders, I should say, that are getting in the way of good policy decisions are going to make way for, for younger female leadership that's going to make the right decisions about, you know, thrusting a humanity forward than, than we have done so far. So thrusting humanity forward, that leads us to futurism. That leads us to the future of work. And typically we say the future of work enabled by AI, but I even want to go so far to say the future of work is being enabled by COVID-19. I mean, think about the acceleration. I know it's not a great thought, but there is a positive side that technology initiatives that companies were hesitant to do on digital transformation we're now seeing a lot of progression there, whether it's you know remote learning with Zoom and Microsoft team meetings, or then even offering opportunities for uh, different employees to see how you could do workflows with tools that used to have to be in person. So I'm not fully sold yet on whether you know the world is going to be all digital or go back to all in person or some hybrid. But what are you seeing for the future of work, both enabled by AI and COVID? It's really interesting. You know, we say that we've been thrust into the digital future and it's like, well, no, we've been thrust into sitting in front of computers uh, on screens like like we're talking on, um, having meetings that, that may be just as productive as we would have, you know, on conference calls or in person in the office. Big deal. That's what I say to that. Yes, kids are at home. They're not in school. You know, they are being taught, you know, virtually by by teachers you know, big deal. I mean, this is not the absolute future of work. The absolute future of work is a fundamental reprogramming of how the industrial world works and, and gets out of the way for a, a true digital evolution of, you know, biology, communications, transportation, and energy. And once we actually get to those foundational levels at a governmental support and international investment level, we can start transforming the world entirely from the foundation and the future of work is that foundational evolution more than it is using the gadgetry and software that, that we speculate might be the future of work. Right? The reason I, I'm very skeptical about saying, you know, an app or a piece of software is suddenly going to thrust us into the new world is that it's just a moment in time, right? I mean, do you remember uh, Windows 95? Yeah, I, I remember DOS, right? Yeah, well, yeah, but do you pine over it? Do you sit there at your computer that you sat at now thinking, you know what, I just want to play around with DOS for, for a couple of hours? No, it, like everything is temporary with software. When you look at true foundational change in the world, what I'm calling the digital evolution, you know, renewable energy, digital supergrids, a real-time transfer of, of cheap, almost free energy around the world mass electrification of transportation, completely new ways of communication using, using everything from artificially intelligent systems through to quantum computing, and you know civilizations being established on the moon or even beyond. That's when I'm talking about a true future of work. It's a complete change in the foundations. So will things change? There's going to be some people saying, you know what? I do want to live on the road. I want to be a nomadic traveler and I want to work. And companies are going to be going, yeah, yeah, we trust you because you know what? 
we've seen that you've been able to do that during the COVID-19 situation. And and that, that comes back to really, you know, the problem in progress towards a new future is that the companies that are heavily invested in the old world won't trust any new thinkers and invest in, like heavily invest in them to truly transform how the world will be. Now, this, this gets really interesting. Countries like China, countries like India are going to be the countries that drag us into this new world faster than countries like Canada or the UK or the USA. And, you know, thinking about this future of work as fantastical or near to the future as it may seem, there's a lot of technology that can enable that. Some of that is different AI devices using NLP and computer vision. But another part that we don't give a lot of thought about as society is robots. And they've been around here for many, many years, but now they're coming of age, if you will. We're seeing robots in hospitals giving people diagnoses. We're seeing robots as dogs for those who want to have companionship in their aging years. I think robots could be an interesting opportunity because robots can't get COVID. (laughs) It's true. But like if, if someone with COVID-19 was to handle a robot and then pass it to you, it, it's certainly a transmission device, though. Yeah. Discuss the philosophical ramifications of that, right? In a, in, in a society, in a community where robots are, you know, shared, maybe. So, no, yes, robots can sort of be independent. Uh, I was reading a wide article and there's robotics that, that's helping, you know, nurses at the front line check on patients or whatever. That's really cool. I don't mind the idea of robots. Uh, What I don't really like about the idea of robotics is that we're trying to get them to do things that are so human that it it is driving us backwards in terms of of progress. If we think about artificial intelligence and robotics taking a completely new track on on how things should work, I think that we're going to make bigger leaps uh, ahead. Why do robots have to look like a human? Right. I mean, the word robot comes from Czechoslovakian and it's the word for slave. Why have we created so many humans that are basically robots in their jobs today? Now, for example, call center operators, you train them, you give them a script, they, they stay to the script and then they leave. It's a perfect use case for an artificially intelligent bot to be able to do exactly the same job because they're exactly the same mechanism. Right. When you're actually got robotics. You need to trust what that looks like. We've seen like Boston Dynamics Atlas robot. People are terrified by this, right? We don't have Michael from, uh, was it Alien Covenant? And um, uh, Michael Fassbender plays that robot. You know, the uncanny valley, you don't quite trust him because he looks a little bit too human. So we, we're going to have these strange, you know, Robbie the Robot kind of characters taking us forward. But really... Is the, the robotics that, that don't look like humans that do something very specific, you know, soft robotics that, that are coming out of MIT Media Lab and, you know, underwater robotics that just don't look like anything that, that really existed before. They're really interesting to me. I think robotics have got a huge, huge role to play in the world. I think that we need to stop chasing, you know, human style robotics that are suddenly going to walk like us and talk like us. And just get back to basics on robotics that just do the one or two things really, really well and without our intervention. 
I think that couldn't be better said. It's, you know, why do we have to make things that look like us, sound like us and act like us? Because that's relatable for humans when instead a robot could be any device with a circuit chip, with programming in any sort of form. I mean, I've seen that uh, there's now like Stingray robotics that are going down in the ocean to measure you know, pollution levels. I mean, there's so much out there that's possible. And I'm excited for what that future looks like. I think it is one of humans and machines together. And I know right now we are in unprecedented times with the pandemic. But Nicholas, you know, if we're thinking about a call to action for our listeners, you know, what would you share today about your hopes for the future? My hopes for the future is this, that we come back to humanity and what it means to be alive, to be sentient, to be conscious, to create community, and to understand exactly where we're going together on on this journey that is the human race. If we do that, and we, we spend just as much time understanding that as we do working in new fields like artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, then we're going to have a balance that creates a future with solutions that are truly going to change the world. Nicholas Badminton, futurist, Thank you so much for being with us on the Humane Podcast. It's been a blast. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.